This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. In the past 30 years, the survival rates for breast cancer has improved by about 40%, one of the highest survival rates of any cancer. The increase in survival is, in part, due to advances in screening technology, as well as improvement to cancer treatment and a better understanding of the biology of cancer all of which have had an impact on survival. Interestingly, research and best practices leading to an increase in survival has become much more personalized and targeted. And depending on the number of individual factors, two women with the same type of cancer may, as a result, not receive the same treatment. In this episode of the Oncogene Brief, I'm talking with Dr. Stephen Malamud. Dr. Malamud is the Regional Director of Medical Oncology at Nuvens Health, a health network with hospitals, medical practices and care centers located throughout New York's Hudson Valley and Western Connecticut. Dr. Malamud is a board-certified and fellowship-trained physician who specializes in medical oncology for breast cancer. As an active clinical researcher, Dr. Malamud has been involved in clinical trials that resulted in the approval of many new cancer treatments. In this episode of the Oncogene Brief, we talk about some of the results of studies presented during the 2021 San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, held December 7 to 10, 2021 in San Antonio, Texas, and virtually via streaming media. For our program today, our editors have selected just a few key presentations. In each case, we briefly discuss the study, as well as how the results may improve the health-related quality of life of patients, and if the study results may change the way medicine is being practiced. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Oncuzine Brief. The Oncuzine Brief is developed in collaboration with our online journal, Oncuzine, at oncuzine.com, that is O-N-C-O-Z-I-N-E.com, where you can find additional information and the latest news about cancer, cancer diagnosis and treatment, and cancer prevention. For more information on how to support this program, visit our website at oncuzine.com. And if you're living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word CANCER, C-A-N-C-E-R, to 66866. And we will make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology. This is the Oncazine Brief. For the latest news about cancer and cancer treatment, visit our online journal, Oncazine, at www.oncazine.com. On the phone is Dr. Stephen Malamud. Dr. Malamud is the Regional Director of Medical Oncology at Nuvens Health, a health network with hospitals, medical practices, and care centers located throughout New York's Hudson Valley and Western Connecticut. Dr. Malamud, welcome to the Oncogene Brief. Good afternoon. Glad to be here. Before we're going to talk about some of the results of studies presented at this year's San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, which just ended. Tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you become an oncologist specializing in breast cancer? Well, uh, I'm a graduate of the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx in New York uh, and left there to do oncology training at Mount Sinai in New York and then became an attending at uh, Mount Sinai Beth Israel in New York and worked there up until for almost more than 20 years And then this uh, spring transferred to the new van system in upstate New York. Um, I had been a, at one point, a more general oncologist, but in, in the 1980s, early 1990s, it became obvious 
that there was an overwhelming need for specialization within oncology, specifically within breast cancer, with nuanced treatment taking place, hormone positive, HER2 positive, triple negative disease. And what I was intrigued with most with oncology, even back in my more formative years, uh, was the requirement for a multidisciplinary approach and a team effort, which was really pioneered in oncology, uh, working together with surgeons and radiation therapists, immunologists, and laboratory people to get the best results and the best outcome for patients. And that was already very much in vogue in the 1980s, and that was really what pushed me into oncology uh, and eventually to subspecialize in women's cancer, specifically breast cancer. And of course, breast cancer is a topic of the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, which is held each year. And this year, it was a hybrid meeting with many people attending the program via their computer to see the streaming media presentations, as well as some people in San Antonio. Let's talk about some of these presentations. The first one we've selected was a prospective screening study reviewing the impact of race and ethnicity on incidence and severity of breast cancer-related lymphedema. Now, lymphedema is a well-known side effect of breast cancer treatment and can really impact the health-related quality of life of patients. Now, this study looks at evidence that suggests that black women are more likely than white women to experience lymphedema. Tell me, please, why was this an important study? Well, lymphedema, which is the swelling of the surgical, the surgical side, the arm of the surgical side, post-radiation, post-surgery, is a serious problem. Uh, and... Uh, accounts, generally speaking, about somewhere between 10 and 15 percent of patients with breast cancer. And there really has never been a good prospective analysis as to who is at risk. Is it the surgery itself? Is it the body habitus of the patient? Is it the subcategorizations of the cancer? Uh, is it the applications of therapy other than surgery, radiation, uh, and or chemotherapy. Uh, and this was a large trial that uh, originally started out with over 800 patients and eventually, um, because of the requirements of the trial, got honed down to about 300 patients that could be evaluated. Uh, and looking to see what are the actual risk factors. There were, there at one time were concerns about traveling in airplanes, whether or not you had exercise. This was the first one to look in a prospective fashion uh, with objective criteria for uh, measuring lymphedema, not just the old-fashioned uh, cloth tape around the arm, but more uh, high-tech kind of evaluation by volumetric analysis. How big is the arm? How big is it compared to the opposite arm? Um, and so forth. Also changes over time. Um, so in that way, it's a, it was the first really good large prospective analysis of risk. Interestingly, most studies of lymphedema do not report about the racial or ethnic background of the study population. But in this case, the investigators did. So one of the reasons they say is that as a result, they could assess if race and ethnicity are a factor in risk of lymphedema. The investigators found that receiving new adjuvant chemotherapy, older age, and increasing time from surgery are all predictors of lymphedema. However, they also found that being black is one of the strongest predictors. What contributes to this? Oh, well, if you're asking for the explanation based solely on race, I cannot give that to you. But there are the other factors involved uh, in women uh, of uh, African-American uh, background. They tended to have 
a lot bigger women with a higher body mass index. They also tended to have more nodal involvement. Some of that relates sort back to delay in diagnosis sometimes, sometimes in terms of the aggressivity of the treatment. Um, but if one looks to, uh, they had the highest uh, rate of uh, lymphedema, the African-American women with uh, almost 40% by two years uh, in the study, while only 20 odd percent of the uh, Caucasian women had uh, lymphedema by that time. Uh, there were overlapping risk factors aside from race, uh, there were, uh, in terms of whether or not they received preoperative chemotherapy, uh, was also a risk factor. And if you weigh into that, that the larger the disease and the more like the more palpable disease is in the axilla, meaning node positivity and large tumors, those are the patients that are going to get neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Uh, ergo, the African American women tended to have more lymphedema, but even in even in the multivariate analysis, when one excludes all of the other coexisting factors, uh, black uh, uh, demographics of African-American women uh, had a very high risk compared to even the Hispanics women, which uh, were next in line, uh, and then Asians and then Caucasian women. Why that is, we don't know the real physiology uh, by demographics as to what's going on in the axilla with um, the differences between Caucasian women and African-American women. If it relates to the chemotherapy, maybe it's inflammation in the lymph nodes that is more common uh, in, the, in the larger African-American women than it is in the thinner Caucasian women. We don't know the answers to those questions. These are provocative and uh, sort of hypothesis-generating kinds of questions that's going to take another level of investigation to figure that out. And I think that this is definitely an interesting observation. But as you just said, more work is needed to identify ways to improve outcomes for people who are disproportionately affected by cancer, which requires research efforts that range in scope from designing and implementing culturally appropriate health interventions, to improving access to care and clinical trials, to examining genetic factors that may explain differences, and why there is a difference in the first place, right? Yeah, to sort of, we have to sort of tweak out all the individual subfactors and perhaps gain a greater insight into the actual mechanistic uh, process as to what's going on in the different demographic subsets. Let's take a short break and then we're back with Dr. Stephen Malamut. Hi, I'm Paul Schmidt, one of the many voices of the Oncazine Brief. Help us by making your message heard in our program and online in Oncazine at www.oncazine.com. To request a media kit and learn more about advertising, sponsorship, and media partnership opportunities, download our media kit at www.oncazine.com slash media kit. This is the Oncazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. And welcome back. In today's episode of the Oncogen Brief, I'm talking with Dr. Stephen Malamut. Dr. Malamut is the Regional Director of Medical Oncology at Nuvens Health, a health network with hospitals, medical practices, and care centers located throughout New York's Hudson Valley and Western Connecticut. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Oncogen Brief. 
Now another presentation includes updates from the Keynote 522 trial. An article published in February 2020 in the New England Journal of Medicine concluded that among patients with early triple negative breast cancer, the percentage with a pathological complete response was significantly higher among those who received pembrolizumab plus neoadjuvant chemotherapy than among those who received placebo plus neoadjuvant chemotherapy. The primary analysis of that study showed a statistically significant and clinically meaningful improvement in event-free survival with pembrolizumab plus chemotherapy, followed by pembrolizumab. To assess the robustness and consistency of the primary event-free survival results, the study investigators performed a new subgroup analysis. Now, before we're going to talk about these results, first of all, as a reminder, why is triple negative breast cancer so difficult to treat? And what is the current standard of care? Well, triple negative breast cancer is, as this is described, it, ha it, has, it is negative for the estrogen receptor. It is negative for the progesterone receptor, which means that it's hormone insensitive. Hormone manipulation will not uh, change the outcome of that disease. And it's also HER2 negative, which is the third driving force uh, that we know about or can make significant impact, and ergo triple negative. It has always been... Uh, the most difficult of the tumor types to handle effectively. They tend to have rapid recurrences. They tend to occur more commonly in younger women uh, or more commonly associated with the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genetic defects. After standard cytotoxic chemotherapy, meaning you know, chemotherapy of the past, uh, there were often uh, relapses shortly thereafter. Uh, so the, the treatment has now evolved uh, to looking to find other means of addressing triple negative breast cancer, finding new targets for our uh, new thrust into targeted therapy. And the Keynote 522 was one of several trials looking at immune modulation to try and strip the triple negative breast cancer of its immune protection such that the body can elicit an immune response and help control that cancer. Immunomodulatory therapy has become a very uh, popular approach in a many uh, tumor types uh, in the United States, uh, and breast cancer is just now the latest. So instead of looking at a target like HER2, in this approach, you're looking to destroy the protective layer, protecting the cancer to remove it. The camouflage that the tumor puts up, more or less, other targets are being explored, other antibodies that uh, address other potential targets are being looked at. But so far, uh, immune modulation seems to be taking hold uh, in the treatment of triple negative breast cancer. And this is a relatively new approach. Yeah, definitely. In, in terms of solid tumor, it's a new approach. Definitely in breast cancer, it's a new approach. Uh, it had found originally its way into the treatment of metastatic breast cancer, which is usually the case. And now with the Keynote 522, it's looking at the neoadjuvant, meaning treating prior to surgery and then deciding upon what needs to be done postoperatively. Uh, and lastly, eventually in the treatment of adjuvant breast cancer, patients perhaps who did not get immune therapy or immunomodulatory therapy prior to their surgery, but become candidates for it postoperatively. So the Keynote 522 study, with more than three years of follow-up, may offer women with high-risk early-stage triple-negative breast cancer a new treatment option for this aggressive disease. Can we say that this is potentially practice-changing? 
Yeah, I mean, the 522 data has been available for a while. This is a reaffirmation of that. The FDA also has recognized the value of neoadjuvant immunomodulatory therapy uh, with pembrolizumab in breast cancer. So I think there's general consensus that the right patient uh, in terms of the volume of disease and other comorbid factors are candidates for immunomodulatory therapy preoperatively and potentially postoperatively. The next study discusses the results of the Phase three Emerald study with a first oral selective estrogen receptor degrader, or CERT, to demonstrate a statistically significant and clinically meaningful improvement of progression-free survival versus standard of care in patients with estrogen receptor positive HER2-negative breast cancer in the second and third line setting. Tell me a little bit more about this study and the study results. Well, in terms of background, there are several ways of treating hormone-positive breast cancer. One, you can block the effect of estrogen on the receptor, and that's been the classic way that tamoxifen for years, now since the 1980s, has been treating uh, breast cancer, both pre- and postmenopausal. There's also the mechanism of reducing the amount of estrogen in the system, and that would be through the aromatase inhibitors. And I've also now three of them available in the United States. There is also a, a, a treatment plan using something, a, a drug called fulvestrin, which is an estrogen receptor down regulator or degrader. And what this actually does is it actually will destroy the estrogen receptor so it no longer is there to react to circulating estrogens, whether or not they've been reduced uh, or blocked. Uh, the only available estrogen receptor down regulator or CERD in this country is a parental, meaning injectable agent that one has to give uh, once a month uh, as a injections into each buttock, which I'm sure you can imagine is not particularly friendly. Uh, it requires the, a visit every, mo every month for, for treatment uh, and is uh, an uncomfortable procedure. Elacitrant is the first oral surge of this category to come uh, to this stage of uh, development where it will uh, almost certainly in a short period of time be presented for potential acceptance in this country as an oral surge. Uh, it offers the advantage of uh, oral therapy rather than parenteral injectable therapy. Uh, and the data suggests uh, in the trial that was conducted, the Emerald trial, that it is as effective without any loss of uh, potency to uh, the parent of the original mother drug, the fulvestrin, uh, even in the patients who had seen plenty of hormone therapy in the past. Of course, again, uh, I'll be a little bit more concerned in the sense of uh, the cost of that agent uh, in the United States, parenteral agents are covered by insurance. Oral agents are sometimes left a bit open-ended there in terms of uh, insurance coverage for oral medications. But it is an advantage over parentals in the comfort level. So definitely an improvement in the way this drug is administered. But one thing that comes to mind, and I think that has been a concern for a lot of oncologists in the past when it comes to oral medications, is the question about adherence. Some patients may simply not adhere to an oral treatment regimen. Is that a real concern? Um, yes, it, uh, certainly it does. It would be, you can certainly be certain if you give an injection, it's in, you've done it, you know they've gotten it. You have to uh, choose the patient in terms of uh, their history of compliance. This medication comes with relatively 
few side effects that would drive a non-compliance. Cost would, of course, be a non-compliance if it comes if it's an out-of-pocket cost of, for the drug, in which case one would immediately switch back to the parenteral agent. But the usual the side effects are not any really any different uh, than the injectable medication, a little bit of nausea, and that's really about it. And um, I think the main issue is going to be availability of the medication, the cost of the medication. Uh, I'm not certain that toxicity or side effects are going to drive noncompliance for this agent. And I guess to help patients adhere, it also requires a little bit more in terms of patient education from the care team. Well, certainly if there are issues that the patient brings up in between visits, they will have to be addressed by phone to try and coax them through it. Perhaps more um, anti-nausea medication might be required. The Again, anytime you have oral agents, but I think in general in oncology, at least in my practice, there is always a really strong bond and a tight communications between the patients, the nursing staff, and myself. When we look at this treatment option, does this improve the health-related quality of life of patients? There are still plenty of uh, patients out there that are somewhat needle-phobic. <laughs> that might be an explanation for some of the COVID vaccination data or lack thereof, but also uh, the pain at the injection site. Sometimes there are patients, especially uh, older women, who don't have a lot of body mass, especially around their buttocks. Uh, so it becomes more uh, problematic to give an eye deep, deep muscular injection into the buttock if someone has already lost a lot of weight or is thin from the get-go. The fact they would not necessarily need to come into the office every month to get two shots, one into each cheek, is a quality of life issue, especially in more rural uh, environments where it may be more difficult for patients to come in monthly. Uh, Even when I was practicing in Manhattan, it was a challenge uh, for patients to come in from the boroughs and then park in a garage that cost them another $50 to park. So there are a lot of Fewer office visits, the lack of injection pain, I think all contribute to quality of life issues. Would you consider this a potentially practice-changing treatment? Yeah, potentially, depending on, again, the availability of the drug. Let's take a break. If you're just joining us, in this episode of The Youngest in Brave, I'm talking with Dr. Stephen Malamud. Dr. Malamud is the Regional Director of Medical Oncology at Nuvens Health a health network with hospitals, medical practices, and care centers located throughout New York's Hudson Valley and Western Connecticut. In this episode of the Ongezin Brief, we talk about some of the results of studies presented during the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, held December 7 to 10, 2021, in San Antonio, Texas, and virtually via streaming media. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Ongezin Brief. Sarcoma. Odds are you've never heard that word before. For the 40 people diagnosed with sarcoma every day, it is a life-changing word because sarcoma is cancer. Through awareness, advocacy, and research, the Sarcoma Foundation of America is bringing hope to the families whose lives have been turned upside down by a cancer they had never heard of until diagnosis. Please join us in the fight to find the cure for sarcoma. For more information on the work of the Sarcoma Foundation of America, go to curesarcoma.org.
This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. And welcome back. In today's episode of the Yonkazine Brief, I'm talking with Dr. Stephen Malamud. I'm Peter Hoffland, and this is the Yonkazine Brief. Let's look at another study, results from the Responder study, which was designed to determine the effect of chemotherapy, shows that the majority of women who are over 50 years of age will not necessarily benefit from chemotherapy, while women who are under 50 years of age may continue to show a benefit. This is an update from an older study. Tell me please a little bit more about the study and why you think the results are important. So this was the responder trial that was presented by Kevin Kalinsky, and it was a second uh, goal with, the, um, with Oncotype DX, which is the genomic analysis, looking at node-positive breast cancer, up to three positive nodes. This was originally published back in the New England Journal not long ago. And the bottom line uh, is that in those patients that had one to three positive nodes, but a uh, Oncotype score 26 or less, if they were over 50, they did, were not benefiting from chemotherapy. And that meant that more than 50% of those women did not need chemotherapy. What was distinct uh, from that trial uh, is the potential and the persistent value in chemotherapy for, pay, for women under the age of 50 or premenopausal who had one to three positive nodes. There, there was a benefit for those patients uh, who were node positive, almost regardless of what their Oncotype score was. So right now, Oncotype uh, would be, I think, become standard of uh, care uh, for women one to three positive nodes over the age of 50 to try and differentiate those who will and will not benefit from the addition of chemotherapy. Uh, women who are premenopausal and under the age of 50 almost, almost always seem to have benefited somewhat from chemotherapy to various degrees, uh, where now the role of the Oncotype DX in the premenopausal women is mainly to help in prognostication rather than in the decision-making as to how much, whether or not they need chemotherapy or not. When you look at your own practice, for example, how might these results change the way you treat patients? We had already been doing pretty much what we had participated at, actually, in our, uh, our responder. Uh, so we were already quite familiar with where we were going there. Uh, I think for the most, for the most part, uh, all women over the age of 50 in this office uh, will be getting oncotype uh, studies, genomic analysis, if they, if they have one to three positive nodes and smaller tumors. Uh, women under the age of 50, Again, they will almost certainly be getting chemotherapy, but some of them still, and I oftentimes will want to see what their actual prognostication is, what is the prognosis predicted by uh, the genomic analysis, and perhaps use that as a means to decide upon what kind of chemotherapy, how aggressive might that chemotherapy need to be. But the genomic analysis, I think we've gone far and away what used to be the TNM classification. How big is it? Are there lymph nodes? Are there metastases? We're getting much more nuanced and into the subtleties of the biology of that tumor uh, and not relying so much on numbers of nodes and how big is the tumor, but the true biology. And that's going to come even more so when we start really cutting up uh, the genetic profile of these tumors beyond uh, this, the uh, 16 genes looked at with uh, genomic uh, 
These study results show that genomics play a role in guiding treatment decisions. And as you've just explained, for patients with early-stage ER-positive, HER2-negative, node-negative and node-positive breast cancer, the Oncotype DX breast recurrence score quantifies the risk of distant recurrences and the likelihood of chemotherapy benefit. Knowing the breast recurrence score may guide a care team to the right systemic adjuvant treatment decision. Now, in case a patient does not benefit from added chemotherapy, how do you treat? Well, these, these patients are all hormone positive, so they will all get hormone anti-estrogen therapy. Uh, the, the question that's being asked in this particular trial, what is the advantage of adding uh, chemotherapy to that foundation of anti-estrogen therapy? And if they don't need the hormone therapy, the chemotherapy, that avoids a lot of the toxicities and issues related to quality of life. The other uh, topic that was discussed uh, quite a lot was the role of ovarian suppression and whether or not turning off a young woman's ovaries in combination with an anti-estrogen approach uh, is equivalent to or better than uh, chemotherapy if you've elected not to use chemotherapy. Uh, that is uh, still a very hotly debated topic, and there was a, 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 a debate actually devoted to that topic of ovarian suppression, yes or no, in the setting of uh, early-stage breast cancer. What was the conclusion of the majority? I think if you took a vote, it was split right down the middle. There was not a, there was not a, I think the, the higher the risk, the closer you are to chemotherapy, the more likely it is you're going to get offered ovarian suppression. Are these results practice changing? Perhaps in some quarters, others had already been adopting this uh, technique, but as per NCCN guidelines, uh, the current recommendation is in this setting of women with one to three positive nodes, small tumor, hormone positive, the genomic analysis is critical in deciding upon chemotherapy, yes or no, especially in the women over the age of 50 and postmenopausal. And the presented results were an update from a previous study, right? Yeah, yeah and I, I did, a new analysis was built into that in terms of the interval free time, uh, which was not reported in the New England Journal. Let's look at the results from a subgroup analysis from the randomized phase 3 DESTINY BREAST 3 trial, which included trastuzumab deruxtecan versus trastuzumab emtensine in patients with HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer. Both drugs are so-called antibody drug conjugates, or ADCs. Tell me a little bit more about this class of agents. Okay, well, the ADCs, or antibody drug conjugates, are... I guess you, you would have to liken it to what's been called a smart bomb in, in medical oncology. You, what you're doing is you're picking your target, in this case HER2, and using the antibody that's been available since the, since the onset, trastuzumab, and attaching to that monoclonal antibody a chemotherapy drug, moiety, sometimes only measured in a couple of molecules on top of this antibody, and the logic behind it is that the antibody brings the chemotherapy drug to its target on the surface of the tumor cell, very specifically targeting these couple of molecules to the tumor cell. They attach to the tumor cell and then uh, by uh, cell processes internalize it and kill the tumor cell. That is the mechanism for all of the ADCs and is the mechanism for terastuzumab deruxtecan in the Destiny 03 trial. In this case, we're talking about two approved drugs, 
trastuzumab antensine was among the earlier ADCs approved, and this study compares both agents. What is the difference between trastuzumab deruxtecan and trastuzumab antensine? The approach is the same. It still uses the trastuzumab as a targeting agent. The chemotherapy drug is different. TDM1 uses a drug, um, metansine, and the TDXD, or the, the uh, Destiny drug, the Destiny 3 drug uses, again, a different chemotherapy agent. It's possible that the configuration of the molecule is making it uh, more active. It's possible that the chemotherapy drug itself uh, is more active. If you look at the two different drugs, there actually is more chemo medication, chemo drug attached to the to this new drug than there was to the TBM1. So maybe it's a number of, of molecules of chemotherapy attached to the antibody. But the trial that we're talking about actually uh, took TBM1, the drug that had been has been available for a while, and compared it uh, to the new drug, the trastuzumab deruxtecan in metastatic HER2 positive breast cancer in patients who had already seen a fair amount of anti-HER2 therapy. And what was the outcome of this study? Well, relatively clear-cut evidence that the newer drug, the testuzumab deruxtecan, the TXD, was superior to the TDM1 uh, in first relapse for patients who had uh, previously been treated with anti-HER2 therapy. Really, there's the number of zeros after the P, uh, the number after the decimal point, there were, I don't I think I was more than 20 zeros. So a, a clearly improved uh, objective response rate, uh, time to progression. Uh, what was new in the, in the update reported last week is that the question had been as to what would be the effect on brain metastasis, which are a particular problem uh, in HER2 positive breast cancer, which has a propensity for brain metastasis. Although that was not the specific intent of the trial, they were able to go back and retrospectively look at uh, the breast cancer responses in the brain. And it was, again, dramatically improved over what they saw, what the investigators saw with the pre-existing TDM1. Now, tell me a little bit more about reducing brain metastasis. Of course, that's important. Absolutely. I mean, there are, in, in HER2 positive breast cancer, we learned pretty quickly uh, that although the body could be well controlled with uh, trastuzumab and chemotherapy, single early relapses in the brain were common, uh, as well as later metastasis when uh, the other areas of the body were also being affected. Uh, so HER2 metastatic brain disease is a high level of uh, interest. Another previously existing drug, tucatinib, has already demonstrated value in combination with other medications. It's a, more of a triplet therapy with trastuzumab, capsidomib, and tucatinib. And that had been our go-to combo for home, uh, HER2 positive breast cancer metastatic to the brain. Uh, this trial was not specifically addressing the metastatic disease to the brain. So likely we will see a further investigation comparing uh, what has been more or less the standard go-to approach with tucatinib comparing it to uh, TXD. If we compare these results with the current standard of care, are they practice changing? I would think that with this data presented as it is outside of the brain, which was not one of the pre-described endpoints in the trial, 
the new drug, the TXD, will likely replace TDM1 as the first line for metastatic recurrent HER2-positive breast cancer. And this will no doubt contribute to an improvement in the health-related quality of life for patients, correct? Yeah, well, clearly, the quicker you get control of the disease, quality of life goes up. The frequency of administration is about the same. There are differences in terms of the side effect profile, but again, totally manageable from the oncology standpoint. Let's take a short break, and then we're back with Dr. Stephen Malamud. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is The Youngest in Brief. In the 1960s, a coalition of concerned citizens, scientists, and politicians joined forces to convince the federal government to focus its efforts on conquering cancer. In 1971, a single piece of legislation forever changed how we view cancer and cancer treatment. In that year, on December 23, 1971, the National Cancer Act was signed into law by President Richard Nixon. The National War on Cancer was declared with some leaders naively arguing that the disease would be conquered by the nation's bicentennial, a mere five years in the future. The National Cancer Act cemented the nation's commitment to medical science, clinical trials, and advanced research, and over the next five decades, scientific discoveries demonstrated the great complexity of what had formerly been thought of as a single disease. With the advent of the genetic characterization of cancer, it is now recognized that there are almost an infinite number of cancers as defined by their many genetic mutations. The National Cancer Act established the infrastructure for the designation of centers of excellence by the National Cancer Institute, and these centers have evolved into models of multidisciplinary, collaborative cancer research, treatment, and prevention, contributing to a reduction in cancer mortality and increase in the quality of life and survival that has translated into more than 17 million cancer survivors in the United States since 2021. Join the Yonkazine Brief this spring as we share the stories, the people, past and present, who have made progress possible and have shaped how cancer research, clinical trials, and treatment are being conducted today. This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. And welcome back. This is the Yonkazine Brief. If you're just joining us in today's episode of the Yonkazine Brief, I'm talking with Dr. Stephen Malamud. Dr. Malamud is the Regional Director of Medical Oncology at Nuvens Health, a health network with hospitals, medical practices, and care centers located throughout New York's Hudson Valley, and Western Connecticut. Dr. Malamud is a board-certified and fellowship-trained physician who specializes in medical oncology for breast cancer. And as an active clinical researcher, Dr. Malamud has been involved in clinical trials that resulted in the approval of new cancer treatments. In this episode of the Oncosim Brief, we talk about some of the results of studies presented during the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium held December 7 to 10, 2021 in San Antonio, Texas, and virtually via streaming media. Now, let's switch gears a little bit. I was surprised to see a large number of presentations, I think 34 different ones, addressing the link between obesity and breast cancer. That's quite... Frightening, huh? Yes, frightening indeed. Now, there is a lot of continued interest in studying the link between obesity, inflammation, and the risk of cancer. Tell me a little bit more about the work that was presented during the San Antonio meeting. Clearly, over the last 
five to 10 years, there's been increasing interest in developing uh, an understanding as to how obesity contributes to breast cancer. It's not all uh, higher estrogen content in larger women. It's not strictly that. There may be an inflammatory components to obesity, inflammation, and breast cancer uh, has been demonstrated to be a potential link there. Uh, the fat cells uh, in the breast tend to elicit an inflammatory response. Uh, so how also in heavier women, there tends to be a higher endogenous insulin levels and insulin can be a breast cancer stimulant. So there are many factors. In fact, um, one of the potential risk factors that was explored and, and intriguing was the fact of the factor for obesity and even the development and risk and prognosis of genetically driven breast cancer, where we saw that some of the BRCA1 and BRCA2 patients had a higher inflammatory response if they were obese uh, rather than their thinner counterparts. And this is counterproductive to success uh, of treatment and prognosis in breast cancer. Unfortunately, despite even with that enthusiasm, lots of trials were presented, several looking at behavior modification techniques. Uh, diet control, fitness controls, uh, trials that were adapting Fitbits to try and get people to a, a standard exercise program. Unfortunately, there was not a lot of success in achieving weight loss. Uh, there was uh, and there's certainly no contribu contribution to improvement in, in outcome. Uh, patients generally felt better, but could not be actually shown to have an influence on their breast cancer. Uh, one of the trials that uh, also I had participated on in the past was looking at an anti-diabetic drug called metformin, uh, which interferes with the metabolic pathway of excess glucose. Uh, and although in the laboratory, this looked very exciting in terms of uh, helping in terms of the adjuvant treatment of breast cancer, patients who had breast cancer were ready to try and help in the adjuvant setting, we couldn't prove it. So it's not that we're actually back to the drawing board, but different avenues different approaches uh, and different techniques for understanding the mechanism are clearly indicated. Now, in this country, there is an epidemic of obesity. From where you are, do you see in your practice an increase confirming the link between obesity and breast cancer? Well, the numbers of women who are in the clinic who are uh, outside of a, what we'd consider a, a acceptable BMI, uh, BMI is over 25, 26, 27, I mean, we, I won't say routinely, but it is all too frequent that we'll see uh, women appearing with BMIs in the 30s or higher. These are patients who we, we encourage all of our patients to take lifestyle into account. And that does not just mean avoiding smoking and going for colonoscopies, but in terms of daily dietary habits, daily exercise, even if it means just uh, an hour or two of uh, walking a week to keep uh, active, uh, not only for bone health, but for just physical tone, help with their cholesterol and their BMI, uh, dietary observation. So we encourage that as part of uh, standard uh, well-person care. But this is not something you do after you're diagnosed with breast cancer. This is part of a lifestyle change, just like stopping with smoking. Absolutely, just for good general health. I mean, their cardiologist is telling them the same thing. Their internist is telling them the same thing. Uh, hopefully, their pedi uh, if they have a pediatrician and younger children, they're telling them the same thing to avoid excess sweets. 
Uh, obesity does not start in your 20s. It starts earlier than that with poor dietary habits and lack of exercise. So uh, it's something in this country that needs to be addressed early and not forgotten as uh, men and women get older in life. Perhaps even more important. Well, hopefully, this will reduce the number of patients being diagnosed with breast cancer. But what is your advice for patients when you see them in the clinic? Well, we, everyone in the clinic automatically will get a nutrition consult. Everybody gets a consult with nutrition uh, to evaluate what their diet is currently. Uh, usually, what ends up being recommended is a reduction in carb, carbohydrate intake, assuring that they get enough uh, vegetables into their diet uh, and bulk, avoiding fatty meats, avoiding excess uh, calories from fat, but it's mainly reduction of carbohydrates and increasing uh, uh, activity uh, and a balanced diet. I mean, I've always felt that a healthy, balanced diet is better than a plate full of pills. And with all the results presented during this symposium, there is definitely some practice-changing information that may help increase the health-related quality of life of patients that were diagnosed with breast cancer. Absolutely. Things that we do later after the diagnosis is established, but potentially even more important, what the patient can do before they become patients uh, in their in their early lives to address these issues where uh, certain things do impact on their outcome. And that's smoking, uh, blood pressure control, and in the case of breast cancer, obesity and activity. We're almost at the end of the program, and we only had time to discuss a handful of presentations. But are there any other presentations that stand out? Well, I think I think patients, uh, oncologists know this information. At least I hope so. I think patients uh, should take heart uh, that the progress in breast cancer continues. The progress in hormone-positive breast cancer is continuing with the development of new drugs that work along with the estrogen-specific uh, agent. Uh, agents that target cofactors that work together with uh, the estrogen. We're now past the two-year mark easily for survivorship with metastatic or, or hormone-positive breast cancer. Drugs that uh, were we were waiting on data that proved overall survival are now passing uh, two-year marks for overall survival. Drugs like ribocyclib in young premenopausal women and in postmenopausal women. Um, so again, and, and again, a recent uh, four six inhibitor, a bemocyclib, now approved in the setting of adjuvant therapy of breast cancer, also practice changing. So again, patients with a diagnosis of breast cancer should not be disheartened, uh, but should take heart and take faith uh, that there is continued progress on the horizon. Dr. Stephen Malamuth, thank you so much for joining us today. My deepest pleasure. Stay well. In this episode of The Youngest in Brave, I spoke with Dr. Stephen Malamud. Dr. Malamud is the Regional Director of Medical Oncology at Nuvens Health, a health network with hospitals, medical practices and care centers located throughout New York's Hudson Valley and Western Connecticut. We spoke about some of the results of studies presented during the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium held December 7-10, 2021 in San Antonio, Texas and virtually via streaming media. For more information about Nuvens Health, go to www.nuvenshealth.org. 
For us here at Youngers in Brave, we want to thank you, our listeners, sponsors, and advertisers, for your ongoing support. Your support makes it possible that you can hear this program via PRX Public Radio Exchange and in the United Kingdom and mainland Europe via UK Health Radio. And you can also download our program via podcast and streaming media, including iTunes and Spotify. For more information about supporting the Oncosine Brief, go to oncosine at oncosine.com. That is O-N-C-O-Z-I-N-E.com. If you're living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word CANCER, C-A-N-C-E-R, to 66866. And we will make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology. Thank you all. And thank you for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is The Youngest in Brief. Oncozine Brief is a global medical educational service from the publishers of Oncozine and ADC Review, the journal of antibody drug conjugates. Support for the Oncozine Brief comes from our commercial underwriters and advertisers and the listeners to this station. For more information about advertising, underwriting, and sponsoring options, visit Oncozine at www.oncozine.com forward slash podcasts. The Oncozine Brief contains health and medicine-related information and is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only. The content in this program is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice and guidance. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it.